who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Rogues of the Black Fury, episode 19. Rogues of the Black Fury, a novel, written and produced by Travis Heerman. This novel contains violence, adult language, and mature situations. Listener discretion is advised. For more information, please visit travisheerman.com slash rogues. guest performer, Danielle McCarville. For more information about Danielle, check out the Rogues of the Black Fury podcast website. Chapter 30 Home? She whispered. Yes. The man nodded, taking her hand. My companions are waiting for my signal. Now be quiet, he whispered. We must get out of here. Stay close to me. She nodded, and tried to think with her heart thundering in her ears like war drums, threatening to wake every priest and acolyte in the temple, as if her screams had not already done so. The man stole toward the open door. He made no sound as he moved into the foyer outside the storage room, and his clothing merged like an oily shadow with the darkness. The rush of movement and flash of steel slid through the dim light from the storeroom. With reflexes like a cat, her rescuer dodged back, shoving her to the floor out of harm's way. Steel whispered against flesh and cloth. She could see little in the darkness, only heard the grunt of exertion and the hiss of breath, a single ching of steel against steel, a sharp blow, a sickening gurgle, and a man sprawled at her feet, gasping through red lips as a deep gash in his throat spewed a dark, glistening pool into the lamplight. She had so many times imagined terrible harm coming to that face, she knew it even as the life left it. Gustin. Her rescuer's hand clutched hers again and jerked her toward the gap of starlight spilling through the temple doors. Elation lent fresh strength to her leaden limbs, 
so that she felt she weighed little more than a nightingale. They rushed toward the door and slipped outside into the wide-open night, down the steps, through the stone archway, and onto the earthen street. The man pulled a dark tube from inside his clothing, about as thick as two fingers and a foot long. He struck one end of the tube against the ground, and crimson sparks leaped from the butt with a crackling hiss, streaming into the night. He raised the tube above his head and pointed the sparks toward the sky. A ball of scarlet flame shot from the tube high into the sky to diminish and die among the stars. Then another ball, and a third. His silent hand grasped hers again. Hurry, he whispered. They're coming for us now. He began to run down the street away from the temple, hugging the close-packed stucco houses along the side, and she quickly found that she did not have the strength to run far. Her weak legs collapsed, and she sprawled behind him with a sob of frustration. I can't, she sobbed. He scooped her up in his arms as hard as iron bars, threw her over his shoulder, and took off at a run. Her eyes searched the darkness behind them for signs of pursuit as the squatting black hulk of the temple began to recede. The man's breath huffed in and out of him in steady, measured breaths, and she felt as light as a feather on his shoulder. Tears of joy and fear streamed down her cheeks. A dark face emerged from the shadows between two hovels as they passed, bared teeth gleaming in the darkness. Rolf stepped out with steel in his hand. Look out! she shouted. Her warning was too late. Rolf drew back the dagger with its wicked reverse curve and threw. She screamed as the dagger flew toward her face, a gleaming whirl of razor edges. The dagger missed her face by less than a hand's breadth and sank with a meaty thunk into her rescuer's back, just above the waist. The man grunted and tumbled forward, spilling her onto her back and she could only watch in horror as Rolf moved out of the shadows as swiftly as a charging pit-wolf. Her rescuer struggled to his feet and turned to face his attacker, the dagger protruding from below his ribs. Rolf was on him in an instant, eyes blazing with fury and hatred. A rapid succession of sharp, gasping blows, and her rescuer fell onto his back, writhing and arching as his weight drove the dagger deep. Rolf fell upon him with a powerful blow to the throat. Her rescuer spasmed with a sickening, ghastly gurgle. He struggled for breath, weakening. No, she peeped. Rolf stalked toward her. No, she screamed, praying to Mother Inanon that someone would hear. Rolf grabbed a handful of her hair and jerked her to her feet. She screamed again. A powerful blow smashed into her eye, blinding her with an explosion of white light, and she tumbled into darkness. Bella? Javin hissed. That was Bella's voice, I swear it. Rusk, standing near him in the narrow street, hemmed on both sides by stuccoed houses, was clad like all the other black furies in close-fitting black garments that made no sound when he moved. 
with only a light, slim pack of black canvas strapped to his back. The packs were light, allowed full freedom of movement, and carried a few meager provisions, ammunition, and a few other items. Rusk raised a hand and hissed a warning. His soot-smeared face peered into the starlit darkness and cocked an ear toward the sound. He made two quick gestures, which were, re which, which were repeated down the lines and around the corners to the Furies out of sight among the buildings. Sasha, Ost, and their team branched off and disappeared down a different alley. Not long ago, it would have been difficult for Javin to differentiate among the Furies in the darkness, but now he knew them all by their gait and physique. Rusk's massive form glided like a hammerhead shark through the night, silent, dark, and deadly. They moved quickly toward the direction of Corkleg's flares. Barmia was silent. Nothing stirred, even after the scream. Nevertheless, such a scream would have opened a few unwanted eyes. It had been Bella's voice, beyond all shred of doubt. Somewhere in the distance, a cock crowed, more audible than the deadly ghosts sliding through the shadows. The night was a dark glittering blanket draped over the dark heavens. The Guardian's path struck a milky, diaphanous streak from horizon to horizon. This was the time of night when moon devils walked and slithered, twisting the minds of men to madness and murder. They rounded a corner onto a street, and Javin spotted the amorphous, motionless shadow crumpled not far away. Rusk made another hand gesture and moved toward the still form. Three shadows split from the night and converged with him. The body on the ground stirred. Rusk leaned down toward the figure's head, listening. A last gasp of speech wafted from Corkleg's blood-stained lips before he fell still for the last time. Three days ago, Captain Nightlighter had searched the coastline for a safe place to lay anchor, and when they found a small secluded beach, the Furies came ashore, carrying all of the supplies and equipment they would take with them on their mission, and precious little that was. They had spent two nights reconnoitering Barmia's harbor, the town, the countryside, and they had drawn a detailed map of the area. Each of the Furies had memorized this map, the area, and the way back to the ship. Shard, said to be the stealthiest among the Furies, secreted himself among the rocks overlooking the harbor and kept watch for Gullwing. They did not have the luxury of simply strolling into town and asking questions. A stranger in any town this small would be noticed and remembered, and Tonin was the only one among them who was fluent in Farthy. All they could do was wait and hope Gullwing appeared. They spent their nights exploring the area, and their days camped in a hidden but inhospitable cleft in the cliff rocks above the pounding surf. Captain Nightlighter took the ship out to sea, out of sight of land, for seven days, after which he would return and wait for them as long as he was able. If approached or challenged, he would flee the area and never look back. In that event, the Furies would have to make their way overland to Duth, a proposition with an unpleasant chance of success. That there was nowhere to escape left Javin with a sick feeling in his gut for the first day after their arrival. There truly was no going back. While they arranged their camp inside the tall, rocky cleft, Javin obeyed an impulse to talk to Sasha. Her shoulder stiffened as he approached. What is it now? 
he said, I want to ask you something, if I may, sir. I know I told you to call me sir, but you can stop that now. You can call me Sasha. What is it? When did you realize that there was no going back? Not ever. That death is simply a foregone conclusion. Her shapely lips twitched back into a brief smile. At about the moment where you are now, with some training behind me, on my first mission. What was your first mission? She stood up. House Kerrigan hired us to hunt down a group of brigands that was causing trouble near Fallberg. It was a large band and they were well armed. They had slaughtered an entire village because the brigand leader wanted the daughter of the village headman for his bed. When the villagers wouldn't give her, they burnt and pillaged the town. House Kerrigan sent us after them. But the brigands were smart. They tried to trap us in an ambush. Fortunately, the boss saw it coming. I would swear that he's as cunning as an old jackal, or else the gods tell him the future. But one minute later, and the brigands would have sprung the trap and it would have been too late. We still had to fight our way out, and the only way out was through them. Succeed or die. We succeeded. Every mission is like that. Every day. It feels like being already dead, just waiting for the end. She smiled again, grimly. Something like that. But the Furies don't wait for the end. We grab the end by the throat, put it in a headlock, and keep it close. We can control it that way, and one doesn't have to worry about dying after that. As for the pain of dying, there is no need to worry about that either. You've been through more pain in the last two weeks than anyone about to die. The pain of living is hard and never ends. The pain of dying is short. Javin looked off into nothingness. Freedom. Aye, she said. Exactly. And then Shard came back to camp with an enormous snaggletooth grin. They rolled Corkleg's limp form onto his side, exposing the wet stain on his back. Rusk gestured Docks to carry the body with them. Docks slung it over his shoulders as if it weighed nothing at all. Rusk kicked dirt over the blood stain on the ground, then scanned the men around him. He motioned them closer, and his voice was a quiet whisper. They had her at the temple, and it's likely they took her back there. Quick and quiet, no guns. Top down. The Furies moved again down the street, toward the large, blockish building rearing its head high above the surrounding structures. The temple was surrounded by a low wall with well-manicured gardens, providing abundant shadow and cover as the Furies stole toward the four-story central structure. Abundant bas-reliefs, the profusion of stout vines and age-pocked mortar made it easier for them to reach the roof of the temple quickly. Meanwhile, Rusk led Javin, Tonin, Maggot, and three others around toward the front doors of the temple. The massive double doors stood closed and silent. The windows in the temple were all dark. Rusk and his charges stood near the sealed doors, listening for any sound within. Javin's heartbeats pounded like a passing stampede. His breaths were quick and short, and his fist clutched the hilt of his broadsword as they waited. After an interminable eternity, the grinding slide of the bolt told them that someone had filtered down through the temple from the roof. Nevertheless, Rusk's broadsword was ready to stab when one of the doors swung open a crack, revealing a dim, flickering yellow light. A quiet clicking sound signaled that the dark figure inside was friendly, 
Their band slipped inside. To the right stood an open door, the source of the light, a lamp burning inside a dingy storeroom. Two corpses in priestly robes lay within the shadowed pool of luminescence, one inside the room and one outside. Looks like Corkleg's work, Carl whispered. Aye, Rusk said. A stroke of luck that he got out of the building with her at all. He should have simply called us in. We would have had still surprise on our side. Now this entire temple could be crawling with ambushes. But it's so quiet, Carl said. They kept their voices low. I came down from above, and it seems the entire temple is still asleep. The fucking whoreson who did for Corkleg is certainly awake, but he could be fleeing with her elsewhere as we stand here with our cods firmly in hand. We need to search this temple from top to bottom. Room by room, Carl said with a strange tone in his voice. Rusk nodded, gritting his teeth and pursing his grim lips. He moved to the front gate, pulled it closed, threw the bar, and drove his dagger into the wood beside the bar, jamming it in place. He turned to Javin, Tonin, and Maggot. Now, little codsuckers, this is your task. You will stand here and guard this door. Keep your mouth shut and your eyes open. If anyone who is not one of us comes near, anyone, you kill them. Do I need to make myself any clearer? Javin swallowed hard. Thoughts of Bella so close had kept his fear in check, but now he thought he caught the scent of cannon smoke and heard the thunder of cavalry when he knew it was not possible. Not now. Hold it together. The three initiates stood at attention. Understood, sir, they said. Very well, Rusk said. He turned to the others and said, Let's go. The five black furies turned and faded into the dark hallways leading from the foyer, leaving Javin, Tonin, and Maggot guarding the front doors. Javin glanced at Tonin, who was sweating, his face pale. Maggot rubbed his eyes, his nose, his lips, and clutched his sword, growing more anxious moment by moment. Tonin swallowed hard and caught Javin's glance. What is it? Javin said. Tonin took a deep breath and let it out slowly. My mother told me of this place. Barmiyah Temple is one of the holiest shrines in all of Fartha. It is here that Sadim, one of the prophets, spent his last night on earth before ascending to heaven to meet the Moon Mother. He prayed here and blessed the ground. This is hallowed earth. Javin waited for Tonin to continue. Tonin looked at Javin as if he had already said enough, then realized Javin's puzzlement. Don't you know what they're doing? A sharp, gurgling scream of surprise and pain burst out from somewhere and echoed through the dark stone hallways. A slammed door, a heavy blow. Then long, suffocating, grinding silence. The three of them traded glances. Another cry of pain flew from the tremulous blackness. Tonin flinched. Javin's heartbeat thundered afresh. It came with a leaden slug of queasiness. Merciful Inanan, he whispered. All of them. Tonin nodded, all of them. With each distant, stifled outcry, the queasiness in Javin's belly grew and writhed like a serpent of living dread. His flesh went cold, and his chest grew tight. The sound of footsteps approached from one of the hallways. The three men focused like a spyglass in the direction of the noise, now accompanied by the gasp of pumping breath. 
A flurry of brown robes erupted from the hallway into the dim light, arms flailing in terror. A short figure skidded to a halt before them, dark brown eyes bulged to the size of teacups, flicking back and forth. A boy! Javin exclaimed. The acolyte was perhaps twelve years old, his head shaved as smooth as his hairless cheeks. Such a handsome boy, Javin thought for a moment. The memory of another farthy boy blasted through his head, the sensation of his blade grating over ribs, the look of surprise on the boy's face. This one had prominent, chiseled cheekbones, well-shaped aristocratic nose, and bright brown eyes now coruscating with terror. The boy's open mouth gushed a torrent of farthy, and his hands came out in entreaty. He dropped to his knees, tears streaming down his face. Javin and Tonin stared at him. Maggot took three steps forward and cleft open the side of the boy's smooth head with a single backhand stroke of his heavy blade. The boy crumpled to the side, eyes wide and fading into death, his head pouring a shocking torrent of dark gore onto the polished wooden floor. Javin lunged forward and laid his fist like a hammer against Maggot's teeth. Maggot reeled to the side. Javin lunged after him, but his foot slipped in the spreading pool of the boy's blood and he stumbled onto one knee. This instant gave Maggot the opportunity to recover, and he spun. Javin came up and found the point of Maggot's sword at his throat. Damn you! Javin snarled. Did you not hear the boss's orders, Lord Codsucker Wollstone? Maggot sneered. He was just a boy! Aye, he was, and the boss's orders made no exception, did they? Javin clenched his teeth. Did they? Tonin stepped forward and laid the edge of his sword at the back of Maggot's neck. Put it away. Let him up. Right now. What do you care? Maggot retorted. They're farthy. I'm half farthy, you misbegotten son of a jackal bitch. What do you think they're doing up there? Don't you think there are a dozen more just like this one? A score more? A hundred? You know it as well as I. These fuckers kidnapped your precious sister and done God knows what to her. She's thirteen, and now you're squeamish? Another voice barked from the shadows. Stand down, you shit-sucking toads. Rusk stalked out of the darkness, flanked by Carl and Sasha. Tiny crimson droplets spattered his face. The three of them jumped to attention. Now, what in Helion's balls is going on here? Maggot stepped forward. Just a bit of disagreement over the nature of your orders, sir. Nothing serious. Rusk glanced down at the acolyte's corpse licked his lips, then fixed his gaze on each of them in turn. What do you think would happen if we left any of these priests alive? Maggot said, Sir, tomorrow they would report everything they saw to their superiors, and the entire countryside would be up in arms against us. Rusk nodded slowly. That's right, codsucker Maggot. Well spoken. His voice dropped to a menacing growl. Now I don't have to kill you for drawing your blade against a fellow codsucker. Maggot gulped. Rusk stepped up to Javin and stood before him, looking him squarely in the eye. Javin met his gaze. Tomorrow, anyone left alive in this building would have a thousand tales to tell about us. In his mind, Javin saw the wet lips of the acolyte's wound and the bloody gobbets of gray brain peeking out between the cracks of the cleft skull. Or was it a boy on a battlefield with a pierced heart? Anyone who comes to investigate this scene tomorrow must know nothing about us. Who we are, what we want. 
The not knowing will make them hesitate, just as we hesitated when Bella was taken. In that moment of hesitation lies our only chance. Do you understand me, Javan? Javan swallowed hard. Do you remember everything I said to you, every fucking word? Javan nodded. Then you understand. What about you, Codsucker Tonin? Are you feeling sudden pangs of morality as well? Love of your half-blood? Tonin hesitated. Uh, no, sir. Rusk's gaze swept back and forth over them, like the practiced swaths of a reaper's scythe. Will you ever question my orders again? No, sir. No, sir. Good. Now come on, we found something. Thank you for listening to Rogues of the Black Fury by Travis Heerman. If you enjoy the story, don't be shy. Let me know. I would love to hear from you. And don't forget to go to this podcast's homepage and click the donate button. Give whatever you like, but is $4.99 really too much to ask for this many hours of entertainment? Rogues of the Black Fury is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. I encourage you to copy it and give it away to all your roguish friends. Just don't change it or sell it, or the Black Furies will soon be coming after you.